I invite you to take your Bible and find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke 1. We've, uh, we've set off on something new. If you were not here last Sunday, we just did an introduction. We read one verse from the middle of Luke. We read Luke thirteen eighteen. As we're making a start here into the Gospel of Luke, we just read one verse right in the middle, Luke 13, 18, where Jesus asks the question, what is the kingdom of God like? And we have set off into our study in the Gospel of Luke to try and learn a full answer to that question. What indeed is the kingdom of God like? And we started here just with a very simple definition, knowing that this idea of kingdom of God can be pretty foreign to us, even if we spend a lot of time in in church and in church circles. We just started with this very simple definition that the kingdom of God is that realm in which God is reigning. The kingdom of God is that realm in which God is reigning. And... The kingdom of God has had past, present, and future manifestations. The kingdom of God, since it is that realm in which God is reigning, the kingdom of God was present on earth in the person of Jesus. He was the realm in which God was reigning. The kingdom of God was present. The kingdom of God is present on earth in the Christian today. You are the realm in which God is reigning, Christian. And finally, the future, the kingdom of God will be present on earth in the new creation, in the eternal state, in all of its fullness. That's when we'll see the fullness of the kingdom of God on earth. So you see, the kingdom of God was present It is present, and it will be present. All of those things are true. It's an already and a not yet concept and reality. So we really just went through that idea last week that the kingdom of God is that realm in which God is reigning with past, present, and future manifestations. And now here we are in the first two chapters of Luke making a start. We're going to be in chapters one and two um, for the next three Sundays that we're um, having the preaching ministry. We won't have that next Sunday for the children's um, program. But here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to chapters one and two of the Gospel of Luke, which is an appropriate place for us to be at Christmas time, right? This is where we usually come or one of the, one of the typical places that we would come. But this year, In chapters 1 and 2, we're going on the lookout for something very specific. We're going on the lookout for the Trinity in the first two chapters of Luke. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Usually we just come here looking for Jesus and the story of Jesus being incarnate, coming to earth. We're going to step back this year and look at the bigger picture and say, what is the role of the Father in this kingdom that we're learning about? What is the role of the Son in this kingdom? And what is the role of the Holy Spirit 
What is the unique contribution of each member of the Trinity to this kingdom of God? And we're going to begin today with the Holy Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in this kingdom? So these two chapters of the Bible are probably familiar to you. There are two angel announcements regarding two miraculous pregnancies that are going to take place. Pregnancies that will result in these two boys who will grow up to be men and who will begin their public ministries in chapters 3 and 4. John the Baptist begins his public ministry in Luke 3. Jesus begins his public ministry in chapter 4. But here in Luke 1 and 2, what we have is the announcement of those births. And then for the rest of the, the chapters, we've got people basically celebrating those births that will take place. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a portion of the announcement to John's father. We're going to read a portion of the announcement to Jesus' mother. And then we're going to read a really brief passage, only three verses from Acts chapter 1. And we're going to pull all those three threads together in order to bring a tight focus to the role of the Holy Spirit in this kingdom. So as we read each passage and go to the different parts here, Luke 1, Acts 1, be on the lookout for the Holy Spirit and what the scriptures are telling us about the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'll direct you as we go to the appropriate verses. Let's stand and get started on the lookout for the Trinity in Luke 1 and Luke 2. Let's begin in verse 8 of Luke chapter 1. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he, that's Zechariah, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now verse 26, second announcement. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And now, very briefly, Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Post-resurrection, disciples are gathered with Jesus. The ascension is imminent. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we um, are on the lookout for your presence in the scriptures, uh, but more importantly, in our lives. We desire you. We would know more about you and give ourselves more fully to you. Minister to us in these moments. Show us your beauty. Show us what truth is. Give us the courage to receive truth, to humble ourselves before you, to love this kingdom and to love its king. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, that was a really big chunk of text, wasn't it? All right, let's recalibrate a little bit. What are we asking? We're asking the question, what is the kingdom of God like? What is the kingdom of God like? And here we are in the first two chapters of Luke, and right off the bat, we're shown something incredibly important, all right? We have no time to ease ourselves into this conversation because right off the bat, we are hammered over the head repeatedly with this huge, huge, huge thing. We're told immediately and repeatedly about the nature of power in the kingdom of God. This matter of what power means in the kingdom of God is probably the most readily discarded attribute of the kingdom of God that there is. This is not an easy start. This is a hard start to learning about the kingdom. We got to think first about what power means means in this kingdom of God. And this is the attribute that we gladly pitch into the trash can and we think that we're better off for it. It's the attribute about the kingdom of God that we don't want to be true. To have power in the kingdom of God looks very different than having power in earthly kingdoms. It looks very, very different. In fact, it looks so different that it's very near the opposite of what power looks like in the kingdoms of this world. That's why we don't like it. 
That's why we resist pursuing the power of the kingdom of God, because it often looks like weakness. It often looks like weakness when compared to earthly power. If you want a picture of the contrast, think about Jesus standing with Pilate. Call the mind call to mind the scene of Jesus standing next to Pilate, the one man holding great earthly power. And the other holding all the power and the authority of God, yet standing bound and stripped and mocked. Which one of those men looks like they have power? Which one of those men actually has power? Well, what is the nature of power in the kingdom of God? The power in this kingdom is the power of the Holy Spirit. That statement is so simple and it seems so obvious that we are likely to let it pass without capturing the massive implications of it. Please listen again and let this sink into the core of your being. The power in the kingdom of God is the power of the Holy Spirit. To have the Holy Spirit is to have power. We see that very clearly at Luke one thirty-five. We, we just read that. How is Mary, being a virgin, going to have a baby? Well, Luke one thirty-five. How is this going to happen? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That second clause... The second part of that sentence is a restatement of the first clause, just using different words. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. In other words, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is God's power resting on her. We see this same connection between the Holy Spirit and power at Acts 1.8, which we also just read. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's what he tells his disciples. And we could have made a stop on our way. We didn't do this. We could have made a stop at Luke 24.49, the very end of the book where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. It's the Holy Spirit. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. As we go, just remember, the Holy Spirit is a person, okay? This is a Parenthetical statement. The Holy Spirit is a person. Don't forget, the Holy Spirit is not a force. But the presence of this person with us, upon us, in us, is our power in this kingdom. In this kingdom of God, to have the Holy Spirit is to have 
power? Have we understood? Have we forgotten? Have we spit at this kind of power and desired some other kind of power? Something that looks and feels more like power in this world. Let's say three things about this power of the Holy Spirit. Number one, it is a received power. We're going to say three things about this power of the Holy Spirit that's upon us as the disciples of Jesus. First of all, it is a received power. We receive it as a gift upon belief in Jesus. That's Acts 1.8. You will receive power. Brothers and sisters, do you know what that means? It means that we do not have to fight for power and influence. Power in the kingdom of God is a received thing. It's a thing we have. Therefore, we don't need to court power or sidle up to power. We don't need to work toward power and control through human mechanisms. We have received it as a gift. There's no struggle. There's no fighting. There's no concern. There's no hand-wringing for the citizens of God, citizens of the kingdom of God over power. There's no thought of we're in power or we're out of power. There is only we have received power. It's something that we have. Here's the second thing. It is the greatest power. Not only is power in this kingdom a received power, it's the greatest power. It's what we read at Luke 1, 35, which was alluded to in Luke 24. This is the power of the Most High, clothed with power from on high. It is the very power of God, the power of which there is none greater. Is that enough for you? Is it enough for you to know as you walk around the Twin Cities that you have already been given the greatest power that exists? You have it. Is that enough? This is so, so important. Understand church, church that belongs to Jesus. The church is already in possession of the greatest power that there is. The church is already the church triumphant. All other powers in this world are lesser powers. No matter how many chains they put on us, and no matter how many graves they dig for the people of God, this truth remains. All of the power of God is on this people. His kingdom is not of this world. Power in the kingdom of God is a received thing. It's the greatest power. And finally, the third thing, it is a power that cannot be lost. 
It's a power that can't be taken away. The Holy Spirit given by God to the believer is a gift never taken back. The Holy Spirit seals us. It's Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our future inheritance. Also Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit is the abiding presence of God in us until we're with him face to face. The Holy Spirit is a permanent gift. He has taken up residence inside the believer. He dwells. He remains. He stays. The power of the Holy Spirit cannot be lost. Now let me ask you a question. What should a people look like who have been given a power that cannot be lost? And it's the greatest power that exists, the power of God. What should a people look like who have been given that power and know that they can never lose it? Should such a people fret the loss of earthly power? Would that be becoming of us to act that way? Should such a people give the impression to the world that what we really want, what we really, 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 really want is control of earthly kingdoms? Should we in any way give that impression? If the Christian has already received the greatest power and it can't be lost, what can be done to show the world that we believe that? What can be done to show the world that reality? How can you show the world that you believe the scriptures, which tell us that to have the Holy Spirit is to have power, and that, and that the power of God, what, which can never be lost? What will a life look like when you really believe that? And more importantly, when you cherish that. When you cherish and glory in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be really easy and very natural for Christians in our country to fret the loss of earthly power in the time to come. It's going to be easy and natural to mourn that loss. It's not pessimism. That's just the scriptures. It's just 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse. The question that hangs over us as the people of God is that when we see that happening, when we see that happening, when we see the loss of earthly power, will we make greater and greater compromises to try to maintain that power. What will we do? How far will we go to try to keep it? Will we end up betraying the values of the kingdom of God and trading the power of the kingdom of God for a power that we can see, a power that feels more like power in this world. In those days, will we remember that to be a Christian is to already be in possession of a power that can't be lost, the power of God, the Holy Spirit.
and remembering that, will it be enough? Our first point is that in the kingdom of God, power is the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course it is. We preach this unimaginable teaching of the scriptures that God lives inside of us, lives inside of you, believer. What more could be desired? What more could you want? What, uh, what else could be won? What other riches or authority or status could ever be sought by such a people unless we forget or unless we've never understood the nature of power in the kingdom of God? It's the first very fundamental thing that in the kingdom of God to have the Holy Spirit is to have power. Now let's ask one more question and then that'll be it for today, okay? Here's the question. If to have the Holy Spirit is to have power, what does that power look like when it's being exercised? Okay, we have the power, but what does it look like when power is being exercised in the kingdom of God? We know what it looks like in earthly kingdoms to exercise power. You know, if you have power, you, you accumulate land and you accumulate wealth and you get rid of your enemies and you oppress people that you don't like and you, maybe you kill people, you enslave people, you make war against people. Use even evil means to consolidate and protect your power. That's what power often looks like in earthly kingdoms. But what does it look like when the Holy Spirit's power is at work in the kingdom of God? Well, it looks very different. And what we have before us here in Luke 1 and 2 is not comprehensive teaching about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power. That, that, that is, it doesn't include everything, every way that the Holy Spirit works. But I do believe it's a foundational look in a representative look at the way the Holy Spirit's power is manifested in this kingdom. And when I say representative and foundational, I just means we can look at the rest of Luke and even into the book of Acts and see the Holy Spirit working in the same ways. In, the, in really what I would say these two main ways. I'm going to name the two ways right away and then we'll say something about each of them and then we'll be done. Okay. The two ways that that power is manifested in the kingdom of God. First of all, prophetic power. And secondly, creative power. Prophetic and creative. And I'll show you where both of those are here in our text today. First of all, prophetic power. When the Holy Spirit's power is being exercised in this kingdom, we see that the Holy Spirit brings prophetic power. That just means forthtelling power. Or if we put it a little bit differently, the power to speak an unwelcome message with boldness and joy. The power to speak an unwelcome message with boldness and joy. What we're noticing here in Luke 1 and 2, and then the rest of Luke and Acts, is that when the Holy Spirit's power is upon a person, it's upon them to speak. The act of speech. Let's take a little mental tour together, okay? On 
the, the people we remember and see the Holy Spirit coming upon and the result of that filling and the result of that power is speech. That's what the angel announces to Zechariah 115, Luke 115. The Holy Spirit is going to fill John. What's going to be the result of that ministry? An incredible preaching ministry for John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit will fill him to turn the children of Israel to the Lord. He's going to have a prophetic ministry, a speaking ministry, as the Holy Spirit is upon him. If we flip over to verse 41 of chapter 1, see that the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth, John's mom. And what's the result of that? She speaks. Skipping down to verse 67, the Holy Spirit is upon and fills Zechariah. And when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he speaks, he prophesies. Luke one sixty seven. Getting over into chapter 2, Simeon at the temple when Jesus is brought by his parents to be dedicated. Simeon is there and the Holy Spirit is upon him. We read that at 2.25 and 26. In verse 27, he's, he came to the temple in the Spirit. And the result of that is that he speaks. And we get to Luke 4 and Jesus is in the synagogue in his hometown. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and tells him that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim. He speaks. And then you remember Peter. Acts 1, the Holy Spirit falls on him and then in chapter 2, he speaks. Stephen, the martyr, Acts 6 and 7, his opponents could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then he's brought before that council and the Holy Spirit is upon him and he speaks. And we could go back into the Gospel of Mark and get deep into Mark in chapter 13 where... Remember that time Jesus is telling his disciples about what will happen in the future and how they'll be brought before rulers and governors. How he gives them that reminder and that foreknowledge. Don't worry about what you'll say in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be with them for the purpose of speech. When we ask the question... How exactly is the Holy Spirit's power at work here in this kingdom of God? The first and most obvious way is his prophetic power. Power to speak an unwelcome message with boldness and joy. Anyone can deliver a welcome message. Dinner's ready. It's time to open Christmas gifts. Who's willing to speak a message that's likely to get the messenger killed? And who can deliver such a message with a kind of self-forgetful boldness and even with joy, seeking only the smile of God, a person on whom the Holy Spirit is resting? The Holy Spirit is upon us for the purpose of speech and testimony to the world. One of the things that's very likely to hit us the wrong way as we read the New Testament 
And something that we just as soon avoid thinking about is the role that chains play. We don't even want to consider the possibility that a chain upon us could ever be a good thing. Just out of hand, it's automatically a horrible thing. It's like the worst thing that chains could ever be upon us because of our faith and our testimony. And if you would put yourself in that category, thinking that, you know, about just about the worst thing that could ever happen to me is the restriction of my freedom as a Christian, I just want to respectfully ask you to consider what we read in the Scriptures and how it was the chains that brought Paul before King Agrippa in Acts 26. And how it was the chains that he was bound with that allowed him to stand before his countrymen in Acts 22. And it was the fact that he was in chains that brought him near the Philippian jailer, Acts 16. And it was the chains on him in Caesar's household with the imperial guard that that brought him into that household to bear testimony for Jesus. And it was bound that Jesus stood before Pilate to open his mouth and talk about his kingdom. What if God uses chains in our lives? What if he uses a restriction on our freedoms and our movements to bring us before governors to testify? Is that okay with you? What if what the Holy Spirit really wants to do is open your mouth in the presence of a powerful person? And what if it takes chains to accomplish that mission? What are we going to say? Is that something to be avoided at all costs? Or is that an opportunity to demonstrate the power of God in our weakness? What is that? Well, that's what power looks like in the kingdom of God. It looks like a prisoner named Paul who decides to stay in jail even after his chains fall off because there's someone in the jail that doesn't know who Jesus is yet. Why would anybody do that? Why would anyone stay in that prison after the chains have fallen off miraculously when they could run away? Why stay? Who does that? Only a person that knows this, only a person that knows that they are already in possession of the greatest power that there is and that can never be lost. Only someone with the Holy Spirit. Only someone with a different perspective on power. We see first the prophetic power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power that's upon you, Christian, the power to speak an unwelcome message with boldness Enjoy. Okay, last thing. Thanks for hanging in there. Prophetic power. Secondly, creative power. If we come to Luke 1 and 2 and say, how is the power of the Holy Spirit working here? What's happening when the Holy Spirit is on a person? First of all, prophetic power. Secondly, creative power. That's what happens to Mary. The Holy Spirit is upon her for the purpose of creating new life where no life exists. That's the creative power of the Holy Spirit. The power to create life. 
And what we see happen physically with Mary here happens physically with her, but that's what we'll see happen spiritually through the rest of Luke and Acts. Is the Holy Spirit acting on people to create new spiritual life where no life exists and no possibility of life exists, humanly speaking? The fancy term for that is regeneration. The Holy Spirit generating life in a dead person. The fullest explanation of it is John chapter 1 and John chapter 3. We're not going to go there today. We're just noting this fundamental doctrine and that it's supported by the scriptures. The Holy Spirit creating life in a person. For Mary physically here, the Lord Jesus created inside of her spiritually as people hear and respond to the gospel. Now, you may think that that's a really small thing, that the power in this kingdom is demonstrated through the creation of new spiritual life. That may just seem like not a big deal to you at all. Like, that's what this is really all about, speaking and then the Holy Spirit creating life in a person. That's, that's how God's exercising his power in this kingdom. Maybe the creation of a new spiritual life doesn't really mean that much to you. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to change a person? Have you ever had a... Have you ever sat down with someone and tried to change their mind about something and it didn't go so well? Have you ever had the same conversation with someone 15, 20, 25 times and never seemed to get anywhere? Have you been around people long enough to know that there's nothing harder or more impenetrable in this world than a human heart? Nothing can reach the human heart. Logic, no. Arguments, no. Appeals, no. Only the Holy Spirit can change a human heart. And only the Holy Spirit can call into existence life where none existed. That's what the exercise of power looks like in the kingdom of God. Speech and creation. Speech and creation. What does the Holy Spirit's power look like in the kingdom of God? Speech and creation. Speech and creation. Now, if I asked you to take me to the place in the Bible where we find speech and creation, where would you take me? Genesis 1. And we would sit there and look at Genesis 1, and then we would have this great revelation together that, my goodness, this has always been the way that God's power works. Speech and creation. It was that way in the beginning. It was that way in the valley of dry bones with Ezekiel. Just talk to those bones, Ezekiel. It was that way at the tomb of Lazarus. Speech and creation. And now we have been brought into the exercise of that same power, brought into fellowship with God for the purpose of speech and creation. That's life in the kingdom of God, and that's what power looks like. Do you value it? Do you love it? Or are you longing for some other kind of power? 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then also to the Greek. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Do not forget what power looks like in the kingdom of God. As it was in the beginning, so it is now to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, don't let us forget Help us not only believe, but to love these truths, to live by them, cherish them, love them, feel the security of them. That we are those people on this planet that have been given all power by your Son, to whom has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Thank you. We are grateful. Thank you for this gift of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.